Welcome to the Bible Archives, and today we are going to look at Genesis chapter 34, um, which is an interesting narrative, one, because it's really ideological. It's helping to explain some uh, relationships between different tribes and future ramifications for how things are going to be down the road. Um, it's also interesting because it it brings forth a narrative structure and a narrative focus that we don't we don't see a whole lot, especially within ancient texts, um, because one of the primary foci of this chapter is a woman, and it deals with some sexual uncertainties. Um, at the same time, this breaks from the Jacob cycle a little bit because it's focusing uh, on Jacob's children. Um, so it almost kind of breaks from what's been going on, and then we're going to get back to some Jacob stuff, and then eventually the jo- Joseph cycle. So this chapter seems a little bit out of place. It does. Um, and and there's some reasons why. Uh, so we're going to have to cover a lot of ground here because of all those varying factors, and we want to try to do um, our due diligence to give each component the attention it deserves. So let's start with... Dinah. Um, Dinah is the only daughter of Jacob. She comes from Leah, um, and, and at least she's the only daughter of Jacob who's named. Maybe maybe there were more. Dinah's the only one we know about, but she's born after Leah's six sons, and um, her name means her judgment. So a very interesting that name for interesting. your only daughter who's also the youngest of six brothers from one of four potential spouses. Now, this is somewhat of a similar narrative to what we saw with Abraham and Isaac. So Jacob's kind of following in this pattern where we have um, a story where there's an event where the, the, the tribe itself is amongst a foreign group or kingdom, and it's part of their wandering. Um, and then somehow a local dignitary takes an interest in a spouse. In this case, more, it's, it's a woman in general. And each time, the interaction leads to some kind of deceit and then an increase in wealth uh, by the actual patriarch. Now, Jacob's version is different, uh, very different, in fact. But you still have those similar components. Jacob's on this part of his journey where he's wandering, just like Abraham did a couple times and Isaac did once uh, with Egypt. Um, but that's kind of where the similarities end. Um, one one of the reasons is Jacob has four spouses. So uh, where Abraham and Isaac both pretend that their wife is actually their sister uh, well, Jacob has four wives, technically. So that doesn't happen. And the interaction doesn't actually deal with any of the wives. That's right. I mean, it shares some of the similarities to those sister-wife scenes. But then there's also some other scenes as well, um, what we would call hospitality stories, which in my mind, those sister-wife stories kind of come under that. And um, often that kind of deals with things like, oh, Okay, well, the sister-wife stories, for example, are being in a foreign land. So, yeah, Jacob is there residing outside the city. Um, there's that claim of a filial relationship where the man says, this is my sister instead of my wife. Well, Dinah is actually the sister of, yeah. you know, especially Simeon and Levi, who are her blood brothers right. or, you know, her full brothers, I guess you could say. Uh, but she's not an ancestress. And that's a little weird. Um, what do you mean? She, she, she probably wouldn't have been an ancestress. Who would she have married mm-hmm. if even if this had not happened? But there's, this is where it's more like a hospitality story. So often what happens with those kinds of stories is um, they have a common theme where hospitality is lacking or poorly displayed, and it leads to the threat of violence or actual violence towards a woman. Uh, there's two different stories in the Bible. There's a story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and then there's the story of a Levite and his concubine. And in both of those situations, this is the thing where they go into a city. Um, some, they have been threatened. The men are threatened somehow. And violence happens against a woman then because she is put out in their place. Sometimes um, it often then leads to destruction of the city. So that's kind of what happens here. It's like there is, in fact, a rape situation with Dinah where she actually does have violence committed against her. And the result of that then is that the city is sacked by her brothers and, you know, and then that all that booty and all that, uh, uh, all the plunder, I guess, from the city yeah. is taken then. Yeah. 
So there's a, there's actually a lot of different references going on here to other parts of Genesis because there are yeah. parts that are pure hospitality that end in the destruction of a city. So Saddam and Gomorrah, of course, but um, there's situations of plunder, especially we saw with Abraham in like Genesis 14. Right. Um, so you got to kind of see those references, but just just generally, we we can make a, some comparisons, but we can also realize that this is its own kind of story and it serves its own purpose as well. Um, and, and with Jacob's wives, we also should be noticing that they're kind of moving back in the story. They're not nearly as emphasized as they were during the, the Laban part. Um, and so you've got these four women who, you know, he's procreated with and the answer line, ancestral line of the covenants kind of dependent on. And we would think that maybe, uh, a story such as this is going to deal with one of them, we would probably guess Rachel, mm-hmm. but it's not. It, it, the, no spouse, spouse really comes to light within this, just his only daughter. Um, so the context of what's going on here is that Jacob makes camp outside of the city of Shechem. He had bought land here from uh, Hamor, Shechem's father. Um, and it appears, this is important, that Shechem is both the name of a character and the eventual or current name of the tribe. Right. And, and there's debate about that, but we know that Shechem becomes a very uh, notorious place within the Jewish imagination. Um, the other thing here is that this story does not lead necessarily to patriarchal wealth. So what is the point of what's going on? Some of this is going to deal with the ideology of Shechem. So just full disclosure, Shechem also becomes a place in Samaria, which has a complicated narrative with, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Judahites and their return from exile. And um, so that's that's part of it. And we'll get into that. But we also have this other emphasis of the story, which is the sexual nature of what's going on. And a lot of times you'll see this titled as, the rape of Dinah. Now you're going to get a lot of translations here, especially of chapter 34, verse two. Um, in, in the NRSV, it reads this way. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite prince of the region saw her, he seized her and lay with her by force. It's worth noting that there is not complete agreement on what is happening here. So whatever version you're reading out of, it's probably going to look different. And part of that issue uh, is the actual language that's going on. So the Hebrew root words uh, that comprise the sexual scene here are laga, sakab, and ana. So usually this is translated as he seized or took her and lay with her by force and defiled her, or that's worked in some somehow within that. And we're making interpretive leaps there because there's not a whole lot of one-to-one translation that we're getting from the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a good example of, you know, translating the Bible will translators always have to make decisions. And so whatever interpretation you're reading, it is an interpretation. They're not just giving you the plain reading. They had to make decisions here. I will say this, uh, if you're going to go to any of the apocryphal or extra canonical sources, the book of Judith, she has a whole prayer where she is referring to this and she refers to it as a rape. So it seems like that was kind of the general traditional view that this is exactly what did in fact happen. But one of the problems is that there's no uh, word that just explicitly means right. rape in the way that we understand it. Today. Right. And, you know, part of that is because it wasn't as big of a deal. Like yes. the act happened all the time, but it wasn't as emphasized. So they don't just have a word that just means that. They have lots of words that oh, help yeah. create that scene. Oh, absolutely. Right? I mean, the idea, the fact that this word is so layered and ambiguous kind of shows you what the status of women was back in the ancient Near East. <laughs> right. and, and, you know, I mean, partly that's a feminist rant, but partly actually when we look at these words and that way of thinking about it, it can kind of help us to orient the story and what time period it was actually written. Right. Right. And we'll, we'll get into this here uh, because there is, because of how dissonant this story is with what's happening around it, there's a lot of conjecture on how did this get into the book of Genesis and why did it get put here 
So we'll get into that because there's going to be a lot of dots connecting for us. Yeah. But on this verse, let's just look at just this verse two. Laga, for example, can mean uh, take. It can mean lay hold. It can mean seize. It can mean take away. It can also mean buy, which means it can also mean marry, mm-hmm. which again, <laughs> right. this is the time period we're talking about. It can also just mean go out and get. So that's Laga. That's, that's really... A, a, a huge umbrella of things that it can mean, which makes translating a little bit complicated. Uh, sakab. Sakab is a little bit simpler. It means to lie down. Um, and this can have general connotations of resting, uh, but can also have sexual implications. Um, it can also mean lie down is to be dead, to be deceased. Um, and then there is ana, which generally just means to occupy or be busy, but it usually, usually has um, some notion of affliction with it, okay? So these are strange words that get used in a lot of different ways. Um, but anaz is the word that causes the most uncertainty in this translation. So you'll, you'll see it translated sometimes that Dinah is defiled or she is taken by force but you will also see it translated less abusively by other scholars. And it's just worth noting that scholars disagree on this. There's, there's still no consensus of what's going on here. Um, however, it's generally assumed that this is rape, or at least it's an abuse of power that leads to intercourse. Right. Okay. Which comes back to these words, um, uh, sakab and anah. There's only, uh, in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, there's only one very explicit rape scene that comes in 2 Samuel with David's son uh, Amnon and his sister Tamar. Uh, and the words used to describe that scene are sakab and anah. So it, it sounds like this is similar yeah. in, in some way. But again, there's no, there's no just explicit connotation of the act of rape within the Hebrew language. You have to make these inferences um, and, and we have to, we have to do some work of, of transposing back, uh, to, to what actually is going on here. But generally, if you're reading this from, um, from our perspective today, you have to, you have to be diligent with how you're interacting with this text, especially if you're in a situation where you're proclaiming something publicly about this, right? Because anytime you're in a room with a group of people, there is like 99% chance that you're interacting with somebody who has been sexually abused. And so I don't want to sit here one as a, as a male, uh, but sit here and just go like, so here's all of the, the Hebrew grammar and language and uh, technical academic scholarship stuff. And, right. you know, who cares about maybe your personal experiences. And the reality is whether or not, the Hebrew is inferring a specific act of rape as we understand it in the 21st century. The reading of this brings to uh, brings to mind real traumatic experiences for real people, and how you utilize that is going to be really important. Um, so at, sometimes you just need to put down the technicalities and and go hey, this could really negatively affect you. Or you might be seeing yourself in the in the story of Dinah here. And we have to make room for that. This really is. It's a difficult part of the story um, because it deals with a really challenging topic. And if you're sensitive to violence or you've been a victim of violence, especially you know sexual violence, you might find it difficult to even listen to this kind of thing. But it does reveal that there's kind of an underside to the biblical narrative that um, people sometimes find shocking. If they've approached the Bible from a certain angle, you know, a certain kind of like for spiritual guidance or or maybe sometimes this story has also been used wrongly to shame victims of violence. I've heard it said that way, a, bl- a way of blaming them for their experience. Dinah is considered guilty or foolish because she went off into the land right, to visit right. the women of Canaan. So it's like saying, you know, well, here's the story of what will happen to you. It's your fault. You shouldn't have been, you know, wandering with a bad crowd, so to speak. Yeah, victim blaming. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, but the Bible doesn't shy away from these darker realities of human experience. Mm-hmm. So remember that it, it, 
it reflects not only the nature of God, but also how people interacted with that and in times interpreted that. So it's not necessarily showing us. It's, the story we're reading here is about rape, but it also reveals that mindset of the patriarchal world like we were talking about, that's sort of the backdrop to that Jacob narrative. You know, um, unfortunately, however distasteful we might find it, there is value, I think, in studying these stories about Dinah, sometimes if only to help us find like new ways to discuss it, new ways to challenge old cultural ideologies. You know, because in the story, Dinah ends up having no voice and no agency. But to my mind, when we tell her story, now we're kind of giving mm. voice to that character yeah. and helping us to find new ways to look at it. It's always interesting, especially because the Bible is, at least to our eyes, relatively backwards. Mm -hmm. um, it's always interesting to kind of look for look for the the progress in it. Yeah, because in a lot of ways, some of these backward stories are still way ahead of the the time period they were written in. Right. But like, yeah, I, I like how that that angle that we can take is like this is a terrible story. It probably happened to countless women mm -hmm. throughout history. Um, like I imagine this would have been almost mundane. Oh, I'm sure. Which even is, today. Which is terrible. Thing sadly, about. you know, one in four women are victims of sexual violence. And yet we still have this story. Right. And we can still tell it and we can still utilize it. And, you know, Dinah out of millions of women who have experienced this now gets to act as a almost a mirror for us. Yeah. To go, what are we going to do about this? Because it still happens today. Mm -hmm. I find that really, really interesting. Yeah. Um. Now, we do need to be diligent with, with the text language here. And, and I'm going to bring this up, that there are some feminist scholars who also say this is not rape. Mm -hmm. um, and they're trying to emphasize def something different. But it's worth noting, this is a great example of you're working with thousands of years of transposition. Right. Thousands of years of different languages, different historical settings, different cultures. Um, we have to honor the the process that leads to a text like this being available to in in, in English to 21st century people um, it's not written to us right we're looking yes. back on something but no matter how you approach the translation I don't think you can I don't think you can avoid that this is a story about a woman being physically taken advantage of whether or not that's rape Okay, because that's what some scholars are going to argue. It's mm -hmm. not rape. She this is consensual, but it's still her getting There's taken still a power, advantage of. A, a, a power inequality there, right? Yeah. So you know whether whether Shechem plays by you know the cultural rules, um, or how we just don't really know if there was some kind of consent. This this is a picture that our modern world, rightly so, should be skeptical of, um, especially from the perspective of Dinah. Like if we were to have a legal proceeding, um, would we have enough evidence to say that Shechem committed rape? Not with what we're working with here. Right. But this is often the experience of, uh, of women, right? And Diana here is put in a position where she is, one, seen as property. Two, seen as a means to sexual gratification. And three not adhered to as a voice to be considered. So whether or not it's rape, you still have those three problems. Mm -hmm. They're still there. And now we're not talking about 99% or even one in four. Right. Talking about every single woman that's probably <laughs> ever existed, right? So so beyond rape, let let's say let's say someone can completely argue that the language does not imply rape. You still have the problem that Dinah is not treated as a human being. And, and this is about the ensnarement of property and sexuality, and that's vastly in contrast to what we understand ought to be. Now, another detail that's incredibly important here that uh, Amy already brought this up. Dinah does not speak once in this story. No. And for the sake of ancient Near Eastern culture, this is important. Um because the law code states that it isn't rape if the woman does not cry out or protest. We might use language of pressing charges in our modern world, which didn't exist back then. So we could look at that and say, well, of course she didn't cry out. She was, she's a victim. And most victims don't come forward. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Again, transposed back to the ancient world. And this is written later. So why wouldn't the author put in 
some at least attempt by Dinah to follow those ancient law codes? That's a question that we should be asking. So some, some, this is where some even feminist scholars will say, no, the text is presuming that she did consent, that she's actually going, uh, she, she prefers the interaction with Shechem, and she is actually avoiding her brothers in this regard. She's, she's being deceitful to them, um, which is an important thing to bring out. Uh, another thing to bring up here is that if she was taken into the open country, she wouldn't be able to be heard there. Um, and then there's little that can be done because the women's testimony not given credibility. So you, you have one issue on Dinah's silence as far as charges go, like mm-hmm. that we know that about ancient legal systems. But then you also have this other side to Dinah's silence, which is trauma, right? She, she's not speaking out because of trauma and abuse and like enter PTSD language there. That's all fair yeah. game psychologically. Sure. So the, the, I'm just pointing out that this gets a little bit more complicated. And it, honestly, if you wanted to add to this another perhaps contrary uh, idea behind this in a literary sense, she doesn't have a voice in the same way that in the story of Cain and Abel, Abel doesn't have a voice. It's because he is a vehicle to the conversation between Cain and God. Yeah. And Dinah in the story, because it may just be a story, is a vehicle to the conversation between Jacob and his sons and, and Hamar and his son, Shechem. Yeah. This is about also about Israel's identity. So it's like mm-hmm. she's unfortunately kind of a character that was created to be like, yeah, we're going to have this story about this girl so that we can make a point about this other thing going on. Yeah. So there is sometimes it, that going on. Just, it, and that's, a, you know, maybe the more out. practical viewpoint of it. Sure. Um, but... At the same time, and you know, this could go with either take there. Mm-hmm. We don't actually hear from or see Dinah again. That's true. Like at all. Um, she's mentioned as part of the caravan that goes down um, um, to Egypt from Canaan uh, in Genesis 46. Uh, but that's it. Don't hear anything else. No, you really um, don't. And this is where you one take can be. Trauma is so heavy that the author's Could making be. a point. She does not speak again. She just simply has nothing to say. That's worth saying, mm-hmm. right? And that, like that, I like being able to, we did the same thing with Isaac back in Genesis right. 22, right? Exactly. Um, or, or it can be, it, she's so non-essential to the story that she gets spliced in here once and that was it. And mm-hmm. See ya. You know, both of those work, Again. but the, the element of voice that I do think there's an emphasis there. And this is where you have some feminist scholars say, no, this isn't actually rape. Mm-hmm. So this is Dinah's family not letting her marry whom she wants to marry. And the defilement accusation becomes necessary by the family to try to control Dinah. So, okay. so Dinah, yeah. Dinah and she- uh, Shechem, they're consensual and her brothers won't allow it. And Dinah here is uh, kind of pushing back yeah. against against that, that code, um, you know, kind of liberating herself. And it leads to this conflict and the conflicts really between Dinah and her brothers to which mm-hmm. the brothers go, we'll kill everybody. Yeah. Uh, so that's one way that people read it. Mm-hmm. Um, or you do have the issue that she's raped, but again, critiquing the brothers, the brothers are more worried about their honor than her experience and her voice and her pain. Um, and her experience gets removed for the sake of men who are missing the point. So th- those are a couple takes that you have with that interaction as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, even today we see this kind of valuing a woman in connection to her relationship to a man. And sometimes people will even use that, say, in the prosecution of a rapist or something, they will say, well, imagine to a male judge or a male jury, if this was your wife or your sister or your daughter, yeah, that's better than not defending her at all. But in a way, it's also saying, you know, if she was on her own in the world, so what? Can we protect her own personal dignity or does she have to have some relationship to a man in order for her to be valuable? Yeah. Um, And this is where whatever political or sociological uh, angle you take on the world, you know, super progressive, super conservative, whatever, uh, know that there are voices in each one of those groups saying something different. Right. Right. There's there's so many translation and an interpretive diversity with this text um, and keep having that conversation. So 
that is uh, that's all we're going to get into with that verse. Okay, verse two. Now I want us to kind of shift into um, the general story here, which comes down to this story exists as an ideology for the relationship between Israel and Canaan. All right. Um, but it, it would be a disservice to read this story outside of the human experience that creates the foundation of this story. But we also have to pay attention to what are these other details as well. So keep all of that in mind, um, because in light of this, we have to ask, what is the story trying to say? And this is where we have a composition issue. Um, everything I have seen points that, to that this story is composed late. Um, and you get this sense because this story doesn't necessarily flow with the compositions before and after it. It's kind of a it's kind of a sudden break from the Jacob cycle, um, but it still deals with Jacob's family. And then chapter thirty five is going to return right back to the Jacob cycle with the birth of another child. So that's kind of like this flashing sign saying like, oh, something different's happening compositionally here. Um, so the sense is that this story is placed within a book that's all about creating the foundation for Israel's identity. And yes, the conception of Israel's identity as it pertains to the Canaanites deals with negotiation over a woman's body where she doesn't get to speak. Keep all of that in mind, please. Don't forget that part. Um, But what some scholars say is that this would have been written down when the issue of intermarriage uh, had already been taken care of Mm -hmm. in their identity almost as a way to justify why they don't want to want to marry foreigners, especially Canaanites. And we've already seen this um, a lot in Genesis. We meet all these people who go on to found tribes or nations that are Israel's enemies. And the stories function to give an explanation of why there are problems or, you know, why do we hate those people or dislike them or avoid them, etc.? I've even seen some suggest that this was written during the ki- during the time of uh, King Josiah, which is a time period that a lot of Torah narratives are suggested to be composed because Josiah made all of these religious reforms that re-elevated the commands of Torah and kind of rescued the the Jewish identity during a really turbulent time period. Um, that would if that is the case, that would place the composition around the seventh century. BCE. Others suggest that this would have been written in what's called the Second Temple Period, so that's post-Babylonian exile, um, around when the book Ezra Nehemiah was written, which deals with, you guessed it, intermarriage and foreigners. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you have the correlation with Shechem, which is a city that exists well into history, and the Samaritans are associated with this. And they come to live in this place after the Assyrian invasion and exile. And they're hated because they are these, to give a really way too brief and terse summation, they are Jewish, but they're only half-breeds because of what Assyria did to them, um, which involved intermarriage. Okay, so uh, I I don't think I'm going to elaborate too much more on that. We'll have to cover that whole process. Maybe when we do Isaiah, we'll get into how that happened. Yeah. Um, But so there's all these kind of guesses on on when this was composed. Yeah. One theory that I heard with this, the whole story is symbolic of the Samaritans when they built their temple at Mount Gerizim. So it's kind of predicated on that idea that Dinah's name means judgment or justice, which could also mean law. So, um, you know, the Shechemites or later the Samaritans are kind of, according to this person, violating the law, just like Shechem violates Dinah. And yet he falls in love with her. So the idea is that there were some among that Jerusalemite priesthood after Ezra Nehemiah time, they were absolutely about the purity. They hated the Samaritans. They thought that was just a terrible thing. This is a thing which, and I use their language, ought not to be done. So, you know, it's just the same language that we hear in the story. But then there were others that said, no, the Samaritans still loved the law and wanted it, so that even though their temple was problematic, it was better for us to stay together as one people and not bring that in, you know, right. and and so yeah, that's a theory that I have heard, which is kind of interesting. And and these are these are theories. There, yeah. As far as I know, there's no consensus on this. Um, Scholars go all over the place with yeah, this. Yeah, ge- generally we know this is a story about Israel and Canaan. Yeah. Um, particularly the the people of Shechem, and this is about how Israel should regard 
outsiders, especially when it comes to marriage and collaboration. And it, and if I understand if you sit here and, and go, uh, you're talking about composition. Genesis is the first book and it has to be the first book and it was written in order. And I, hmm. I understand that. I do. Uh, if you take on that disposition, um, I'd recommend our intro to Genesis episode. Um, then, then just place it all under oral tradition. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But it, it's still really important to see how this plays a role in when it was written down. So if you're like, no, no, it had to be oral tradition all the way back to the beginning of time. Cool. You can, can work with that, I think. Um, but it's written down later. Yeah. And it does edited, look like it's redacted, edited yeah. later. And mm-hmm. it's possibly composed later. And uh, don't, don't skulk at that too much. Because it's really helpful to see that the Jewish people are wrestling with something really important. They come out of exile. There's, there's people who have stayed in the land while they went off, some went off to Babylon. In this kind of vacuum of culture, all of these different things crop up, and you kind of get two perspectives entering into this. Uh, Isaiah and then Ezra and Nehemiah, and they're fighting. They're, they're disagreeing with each other in what should happen with cultic practices mm-hmm. and intermarriage and foreigners. And Isaiah saying, like, even the eunuchs will be welcomed into the house of prayer. Right. And Ezra and Nehemiah saying, no, they won't. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so here you have a story that shows this wrestling with this issue that has been going on almost eternally for the Jewish people and was still an incredibly important topic during later time periods. And to see how Genesis 34 is interacting with history, it can also be really helpful for us on how we continue to wrestle with issues that we don't have consensus on yet. So I think it's helpful to have that composition uh, conversation here. And again, another component to pay attention to. You've got the human experience of, of, of trauma and, and sexual abuse or sexual issues or relational issues between family, however you want to take that. You have this issue of composition, and they're trying to answer questions about identity and ethnicity and, and, and all of this. As you go through the story, you got to keep these things in mind. Um, and so here we are with, we still have yet to actually get into the text of, of Genesis 34, except for we looked at one verse now. Um, where you, have, you have Dinah. And we're told that she's a young woman, an Alma, which implies both age and marital status. Okay, that's important here. So it's not just she's young by age. That also right. implies that she's not married. Right. And she goes out to see the daughters of the land. And in this, she she catches the attention of Shechem. Okay, so this is where it's similar to, to yeah. Sarah. This is similar to Rebecca, um, a, a young woman. Um is in this foreign area, and one of the princes there goes, oh, catches my eye. Um, and, and Shechem here is a prince of the Hivites. So maybe she catches his attention because of attraction. That's what us modern readers are going to assume, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, she must have just been gorgeous and couldn't keep her eyes off of her. Um, but there's also an, another implication here that I think is actually more accurate. I tend to de-romanticize a lot of these stories and i think that's a fair thing to do back then yeah i don't don't think romance figured much into their marriages at all back then um so there's also the implication that dinah catches shechem's attention because she's not from there this is potential gain to be had by a daughter of israel in the midst of the daughters of the land so when it says she goes out the daughters of the land she stands out in the midst of that Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because she's attractive, probably because she's not from there. So more acquisition mm-hmm. possibility. And Jacob's caravan is parked sure. right next door, looks pretty wealthy. Shankham knows that this is Jacob's daughter. I'm yeah. sure he would. It's not that big a city or that, you know, they're going to know what's so going on. So we have to look at this uh, as like, hey, there's gain to be had by this marriage. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, a huge question through history. We might not have that question much today, but that's you got to kind of put yourself into that, that time period to realize that there's more going on here than just romance. Right? Oh, yeah. um, so then you have the scene that we talked about, Shechem 
rapes, or you could look at seduces, abducts, defiles, or afflicts Dinah. And the result here is the focus. The text does not go into that actual act really at all again. The focus is what happens as a result of whatever this was. Because a virgin has had intercourse. And in the ancient world, that's a game changer. Yeah. So we want to, on the modern world, focus on the rape component. I think it's also helpful to consider that this could be she's seduced Mm -hmm. or bribed or it's consensual Mm -hmm. and there's other things going on. But the at the end of the day, she's no longer a virgin. And this is why the brothers get involved, because now she is completely devalued to the family of whom she is property, and they would have less to gain by marrying her off. Right, yeah. So the emphasis becomes on the shame this bring brings, again, to the family and not necessarily to the woman. Mm-hmm. Because her virginity is kind of like a a political chess piece because of the bride price that's going to be offered. So forming alliances, gaining wealth, gaining protection, that was all really valuable to the only daughter of Jacob. Mm -hmm. Jacob's got to be intentional with how this gets used. Well, here she goes off and her virginity is gone. How that happened? Keep debating that, please. Keep having those conversations about her experience. But this is the outcome that starts explaining why the brothers respond the way they do. Um, and going back to Dinah's voice here, the the presumption is that she's taken in the open country, okay, where she couldn't be heard, which that ancient law code. Right. So when her brothers find out, they do claim rape. At, at the least, they claim she's been defiled, okay? Right. So they're trying to make this, this claim out here because they just lost a really valuable asset and they're angry because they love and want to protect their sister. No, no, because <laughs> now she no. isn't as valuable to them. Yeah. So they're, then this is where some feminist scholars will go, oh no, she didn't get raped. She did this on purpose. And then her brothers come in and they claim rape because they have something to lose by her doing her own thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Then now you can kind of start seeing some, some patterns to the story that are revealing um, but then the story gets more complicated because after after the scene, Dinah and Shechem seem to connect. And again, lots of layers to wade through here, but pay attention to how the narrative is setting up all these various interactions. Shechem is drawn to her, kind of implying that the initial interaction was uh, not based on love or romance or a relationship, but gain. Um, but then we're told in verse three that Shechem loved her and spoke tenderly to her heart. Yeah. So it what did turn guy. into a romance. Yeah. And it's then that he asks his father, Hamor, uh, whom Jacob has bought land from already, to make Dinah his wife. And politically, this is advantageous. Oh, sure. Because this is this means an alliance. Um, and hey, it's already been consummated. So Shechem, Shechem seems to love the girl. So you might as well make this happen. And now for a question. Why was Jacob and his family there in the first place? We never stopped to ask, why do they go out, camp in front of a large city, mm-hmm. and purchase land to do so? And remember, we aren't talking about just like 14 guys, Jacob, his 12 sons, and a sister. This is an encampment of people, a lot of people. Yeah, and encampment's a really good word there. Mm-hmm. Because that implies that military aspect. Sure. And they purchase land, which makes it their their own. And they purchase it from this guy. So there's consent there. Mm-hmm. So now, yeah, we're talking about alliance language here. And again, see where this composition matters within history. That the people of Shechem and, and the Israelites made... They, they were living right next to each other at yeah, one point, Yeah, they're making right? deals, yeah. So uh, some of this is important to bring up. Um, but remember, let's let's follow the narrative here. Jacob was supposed to follow Esau. He says, Jacob says he's going to meet him there where, where Esau was going. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up in Shechem and buys property, making him a landowner in the vicinity of Canaan. I'm always skeptical of Jacob 
and can't help but think that he has been setting this up the whole time for his own gain, just like Abraham and Isaac did. Oh, yeah. Because you get this like mournful Jacob, like, oh, brother, seeing you is like seeing the face of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. Mm-hmm. Nope, won't meet you there. <laughs> going Cut actually, off and went a different direction, yeah. Going to do my own thing. Um, so it's important to go like, why? Wait a second. He wasn't supposed to be here. Why is Jacob even here? And how is that helping us understand the story? Um, then verse five, Jacob finds out that Dinah has been defiled, which again could have negative connotation, or it could just be that she's lost her virginity. Um, and it depends on, I know we keep emphasizing this, but it depends on how you want to see Dinah here. Did Dinah rebel or was Dinah abused? If she rebelled, Jacob and the brothers are kind of the antagonist. Mm-hmm. If Dinah was abused, the Shechemites are the antagonist. But either way, she's lost that political power for Jacob and his brothers. And uh, the specific word used to emphasize the loss of the bride price capability is used here. So this is where, again, even some feminist scholars are going like, it wasn't rape. They claimed it was rape. The Jacob and the brothers are the antagonists, right? Yeah. So his sons are out in the field. Hmm. Sounds like Cain and Abel. That's yeah, that's yeah, my, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my weird. I thought thing so too. I just did there. Mm-hmm. Um, his sons are out in the field, so Jacob doesn't do anything. Um, and we're not yet told how Jacob feels about it. He didn't. He didn't say just that he is going to hold his peace until his sons come back. So Jacob, assumably having the power to say yes or no to a marriage, uh, says, I'm going to wait for my sons. That That's not quite right. Um, Jacob could have just handled this on his own, okay? Mm. So why is he waiting for his sons? Because It seems to me, though, in a way that's sort of according to Jacob's personality because he's more of a deceiver than a confronter kind of guy. Oh, yeah, that. but I think we should be seeing Jacob's up to something here. Oh, yeah, for sure. Jacob's not just like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'll no, wait for my no, sons. He he's a, going, I'll wait till my sons gone. are here. Yeah. And uh, I know exactly what they're going to do. So Hamor, uh, the father of Shechem, goes out to speak with Jacob. Coincidentally, this is right when Jacob's sons are returning. Hmm. Interesting. Um, And they hear about it. And we're told in this, in verse 7, when they heard of it, the men were indignant and very angry because he had committed an outrage in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. It's actually really ambiguous what's being said here. I see trickery over wife negotiations. So think about Laban palms Leah off. With the words that because she would be, you know, to, to marry the younger before the older isn't done. So here we have that language again. It's yeah. like she would have been unmarriageable. Well, Nina is now unmarriageable, all because of something that ought not to have been done. And so these negotiations have to kind of take place of her because who would she have married anyway? It's like she can't marry Esau's sons because that can't happen. There's nobody really left around who is a relationship of Jacob's for her to marry. So it's almost kind of like this sort of solves the problem of what are we going to do with Dinah? And it's also really ambiguous. Very. Like no no one's really playing their hand here and we don't get explicit details. So just on an initial reading, you go, well, who who committed the outrage? Was it Shechem? Was it Hamor? Did Hamor actually create the outrage? Who did it? We don't know. Mm -hmm. Are they angry at the proceedings of what resulted or are they angry at the act itself? We don't know. Yeah. So what thing ought not to be done? And why shouldn't it be done? And you're starting to get a sense that this is more about uh, the, the politics and the situation and the history than, you know, civic moral responsibility. And then Hamor speaks. So I'll just read this. The heart of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. But then he continues. Make marriage with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall live with us and the land shall be open to you. Live and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem then asks for a favor, offers gifts, assumably a bride price. Um, you know, whatever you say to me, I will give. Uh, and, and they can make it as high as they like. And that's, that's the interaction that we start seeing here. So a couple things to consider. 
There is opportunity here to become enmeshed in the promised land back from Genesis 11 and 12. They can take up residence right now, and if they could see the future, avoid the whole exodus thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing to consider, Jacob has to be powerful. Uh, You know, consider that when he's camping outside of the city, he's basically a small army, and they could pass through or they could lay siege and take over. This may just be a depiction of a military strategy of which an alliance is attempted to be created by the inferior party, which would be the Shechemites. Name your price, have the land, because the alternative is that we're wiped out. Mm-hmm. And, and just to add to the feminist flames, that makes Dinah purely a prop. Exactly, which is why she has no voice. Yeah. She's just a prop in the whole story. All right, let's keep going. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob respond deceitfully. Hmm. So let's read that again. This is how the actual verse would read. The sons of the deceiver answer like their dad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And they do this because their sister was defiled. Her value for future use by them has been ruined. So Shechem here isn't just asking for an alliance and mutual agreement. He took it first, okay, mm-hmm. then asked for it. So he made it so that Dinah would have no other use to them and then said, hey, why don't we work this the things out? Oh, Small yeah. army encamped outside of my walls, right? So it looks like yeah, there's sure. actually a military level to all sure, this. Sure, there kind of is. And even there's kind of a sense of Jacob's trickery coming back on him. I mean, he took the birthright. It's the same kind of thing, saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to take this anyway. Well, now, you know... So here he is. Now Shechem has taken something that does not belong to him. Yeah. So So if you're thinking about this story through the lens of like political diplomacy, it takes on tons of layers. Right. Sure does. All right. So then they play the ethnic identity card. And remember, all this stuff about intermarriage, like we should marry, you know, each other's daughters to one another's tribe. And all all of this is an actual issue that Israel had post-Assyria, post-Babylon, post-Persia. This is a real mm-hmm. conversation going on here. Um, and so we get this ethnic identity card, which, again, is them as the su- superior people making demands to gain advantage here. Um, so they saw better use of Dinah. You know, they've been trapped because of this thing that they've done. All at the expense of a person's humanity, by the way. Oh, absolutely. And the brothers are determined that they're still going to get their way. Um, which seems to be to take control of this people without an alliance. They don't want that. That That's kind of how I'm reading it, is mm-hmm. that they, they're there. They want control of the land. The Shechemites find a way to put them in a bad spot, deception. Yep. And the brothers say, no, we're not going to do an alliance. We mm-hmm. can't. Um, so they respond that they can't marry those who are not part of the covenant. And they bring up circumcision, which takes us all the way back to Abraham. So they're not going to join the Canaanites. The Canaanites must join them. They must enter the covenant uh, through a vividly painful act. And if you're reading this in the later stages of Israel, okay, when the Canaanites were a vanquished enemy, and marrying outsiders was a problem, this story becomes a command for how all of Israel should approach the issue. You can't marry outsiders. They have to become Jewish first. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of, Genesis 34 is putting a stake, uh, you know, where it thinks that people should land on the issue. Yeah. All right. Um, And that's their peace treaty. Those are the demands. And in verse 18, Hamor and Shechem are pleased and they don't delay to have a sensitive part of their body cut off. <laughs> they go right to the gate of the city where all legal declarations are made. Um, so this isn't just an announcement. And they they say that they've made an alliance and it's going to be great, but it's going to cost us a bit, a very small bit, hmm. but it's worth it. <laughs> and the language used here is important. In verse 23, it says, and they will live among us. But that's the problem, isn't it? Can the people of the covenant live among those who aren't? The answer in Genesis 34 is no. 
And the sons of Jacob are doing all of this out of deceit, waiting to avenge their sister. I don't, I don't buy that. Yeah, me either. With, you know, without giving voice or taking into account her situation, of course. And so they go outside of the gate and every male gets circumcised. A surgical procedure with a necessary recovery time. And the sons of Jacob are about to use a ritual God gave them to positively transform the world in order to conduct revenge. It's like, just as sexual encounters are a means to an end, mm-hmm. circumcision here in Genesis 34 isn't this beautiful, sacred thing. It's a political tool, even a weapon. Yep. Like, that's heavy. That is really heavy. So this is where, hey, the rape conversation, yeah. We need to be really diligent about that. But here you are with religious people, okay, or at least an ethnic cultural identity, using something that is supposed to be sacred, that is supposed to be impactful, philanthropic even, Mm -hmm. using it as a weapon. Oh, that doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) You don't have religious folks turning things on a certain angle to be used for their own devices. Oh, never. So is this also a a critical commentary on on the people of Israel? And I think it is. I don't think the brothers mm-hmm. are meant to look good here. Oh, not at all. No. But the whole situation is this this circumcision plea. I hope that we can see by reading it well before that this was a setup. This is a way for them to get out of the alliance is to go you have to become Jewish first. Right. And look, we have this interesting thing that we can use to our advantage and just go ahead and kill you all. So, verse 25, three days in, two sons take action. And keep this in mind, because this is going to come up at the end of Genesis. Simeon and Levi. Right. Okay. This is important because they're two biological brothers of Dinah. And they have swords, which hasn't come up yet. No. They have swords, which means that they've had swords, Mm -hmm. which means that Jacob's fear of a military encounter with Esau was a bit more real than we might have realized. And Jacob setting up camp outside of Shechem was not just because he needed to take a little rest. Oh, no. This is not, for example, swords are not a weapon that shepherds use, say, to fight wolves or or lions or whatever. Like when it says they have swords, you got to be like, oh, really? Swords are for killing people. They have swords? Mm -hmm. And uh, this would be the first time swords are really discussed. Also should help us understand some of the dating and composition here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but when Jesus says things about swords, does he have Genesis 34 in mind? He might. I think, I think it. there's a good interpretive paper being uh, waiting to be written there. Mm-hmm. Right. For sure. And if uh, you're listening to this and you decide to do so, please send it to me because I would love to read it. (laughs) All right. So these guys got swords. And uh, while all these men, the people who would have been doing the fighting if there was a battle, they're laying there because they just got circumcised and they're recovering and they're unaware and then Simeon and Levi come and kill them all, including Hamor and Shechem. And they take Dinah and they leave. And guess what the word is for take that's used here at the end of Genesis 34? It's Lakah. The story starts with Shechem taking Dinah and it ends with Simeon and Levi taking Dinah. Mm-hmm. Now, just in case you thought that the other sons were innocent, they go and plunder the city. So Simeon and Levi are pointed out. That's going to be important for the tribal declarations made at the end of Genesis. Um, But they go in and now they were told they laka the animals, which is the means of wealth for the area. And then the actual wealth. And you ready? All of their children and wives. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So one guy laka's one daughter, and they laka literally every single thing. This should also sound familiar to us in the in the stories of Genesis, but also in later stories that are going to come up. Yes. Right? 
And interesting thing that I think is what's notable, all this fuss over national purity and we don't marry your daughters. And what do they do? They take a bunch of women and children as slaves. Yeah. Those, you know, what do you think the fate of those women is going to be? Yeah. So, you know, it's also. And this is where I wonder, because they look Dinah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, like, I wish we had, I wish we had the, the psychological analysis of Dinah. Yeah. Throughout this whole thing. What is she thinking? Because she did she run off almost Shakespearean to be with this guy mm-hmm. and and possibly help Israel gain land in Canaan? Mm-hmm. Was she trying to do the right thing you and then her know. brothers act like a bunch of idiots and they subvert the covenant for their own purposes and she's left there and now she gets stolen by them. And we don't hear from her again. Right, no, right? Like we never really do, yeah. She may have had it in her mind. Yeah. And if we only go like Dinah was raped and that's terrible, we might miss all that. Mm-hmm. So we have to see how all of this is possibly playing together. And and I think Dinah is still, in a way, the hero of the story, the hero that never gets to do the right thing because all of this stupidity is ruining everything around them to the point that you have another Saddam and Gomorrah. Everything's destroyed. Um, and, and they... Laka, all of it. Um, so if you start this story and find yourself saying, you know, wait a minute, humanitarian issue, poor Dinah. Well, the story culminates with an entire population of children and women being pillaged and taken. Mm-hmm. Also should get just as much attention. Maybe we should retitle this, uh, this section in English Bibles. And the whole fact that they use ritual of uh, circumcision to do it like, and Dinah's doesn't get done and she doesn't say, oh, thank you for rescuing me, brothers. Mm-hmm. We don't get any of that either. So what is going on here? And just so we're all on the same page, the, the presence or voice or command of God isn't present in this chapter at all. Nowhere. So before we start claiming that this is like a standard or an expectation right, or a exactly. good thing, Realize that this whole chapter might be a confrontation to Israel. Mm-hmm. And this is where I like to go enter the debate between Ezra, Nehemiah, and Isaiah. Yep. Of Is Genesis 34 kind of put in here to go like, what are you guys arguing about? What are you doing? Why are you completely missing the point here? Like, I wonder if that's part of this because God's not involved in the story at all. This is Israel being Israel. Yeah. On yeah. their own. That's, that should be a huge flashing warning sign to us. Um, and the other question here is, how are the sons of Jacob going to use the covenant? So we've seen Abraham act questionably. We've seen it with Isaac. Jacob's whole story is one big mess. And, and you know, in, in alignment, Jacob's sons aren't all that different from those who come before them. Right. And what of Dinah? Her brothers at the end of verse 31 say, should our sister be treated like a whore? Kind of like as a sort of defense. But that's where we have to ask the question, was she? Or did they just need her to be so that they could end up doing what they actually wanted to do the entire time when they came and set up camp in front of mm-hmm. a city? This gave them a great excuse to go in and yeah. completely sack and destroy that city. Yeah. So was was Dinah the only character in the story that was actually doing things differently than, let's be honest, all of these other idiots? She goes out to be with the daughters of the land. Mm-hmm. Why would she do that? She's in the house of Shechem. What, what is the future like if Dinah actually marries the guy? What is that Israel and that covenant like? But this wasn't about Dinah at all. And it still isn't about Dinah. And, and yes, Dinah is silent in this whole narrative. You know who else is silent here? God. And it's like Dinah isn't given a voice in the midst of everything is going on. And I just imagine some scribes sitting down to make a case for antagonism towards outsiders, and they don't give God a voice in the conversation mm-hmm. either. Right. And if we aren't talking about a million different issues here, the one that should stand out to us is what role does your religious disposition play? Who are you more like in this story? And, and now let's jump forward. Are churches engaging in some kind of debate, meanwhile leaving the, the, the victim silent 
and the very source of their worship and identity silent in God. Oh, yes. Are we just hearing the same historical Mm -hmm. narratives being yelled at across stages and social media and microphones all the while we're not paying attention to the voices that actually matter in the story? Yeah. (sighs) That's interesting to me. And I, I, I really think that, uh, there's, there's, this text is supposed to be a mirror. Absolutely. I think, I think that's Mm -hmm. the role. And there's also a conversation that we can have on the myth of redemptive violence, which is going to come up again. I I brought this up of like, you, you look our sister, well, we're going to look at everything else. Like, whoa, whoa, hey, look at how it, look at how it escalated. You've got one woman. Now you've got a whole, you know, civilization of women. How are we going to, uh, uh, interact with injustice, right? Create more of it. So Israel here is, you know, they're supposed to be blessing the world. We're here. They're just acting like everyone else and they have circumcision, but they aren't actually that different because circumcision just becomes a means to play the same game. Like that should be the most blasphemous, blasphemous thing of all. Mm-hmm. So are the Hivites blessed because of Israel's blessing that by the end of Genesis 34, you know, is the, is the whole world blessed between these <laughs> Descendants of, of, of Israel, because the sons of Jacob might argue that they did the heathens a favor. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah. Well, we got y'all circumcised, you know, yay. It, but it's been an argument mm-hmm. that has been used for war and genocide oh, and murder and rape and mm-hmm. theft ever mm-hmm. since. Yep. A lot of people get abused because it's for your own good. It makes you better. It yeah. puts you where you want to be. It's, you know, puts you on the side of the good people. So at the mm-hmm. end of all of this, if you're going to read Genesis 34... Uh, the simple version is read it like a mirror. Let it expose all of this garbage in us. See the things that aren't said because that might have the most to say. What a nice story, huh? It sure is. Good old Bible stories. This would make a great children's Sunday school lesson. (laughs) (sighs) And, And the whole thing ends with Jacob saying, well, now we certainly can't stick around. Guys, you took it a little bit too far, and uh, we need to get out of here because there are other tribes and Canaanite people, and now they've created enemies, which is what Jacob always does. He goes somewhere, gets deceitful, he gets his way, he gains from it, but he creates enemies, and he has to stay on the run. Um, So this all kind of explains why Israel, though they're in the land, right? They're in the promised land right now, why they don't stay. So it's also kind of an ideology for that. And and they could have. And if this doesn't happen, none of this stuff happens here. Do we actually avoid the Exodus story? They could have settled down there. So this could have been a route to that then. Yeah, so it's just part of this explaining why mm-hmm. they had to keep moving. Well, yeah. Because they created... They always the create that, but there. there's also kind of that separation thing. I mean, if that relationship with Samaria is going to be one of those, it's always like, okay, you have uh, Isaac and, es- and Ishmael, you know, it's a close but not quite kind of thing. Yep. And then you have Jacob and Esau. It's like one is the covenantal person, one is not. They have to separate. It, they have to separate. They have to separate. And again, here, if this is Samaria, Joseph. they have to separate. Yeah. And it's going to happen again. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Um, You know, I often think like if you take all of the mistakes out of the Bible, like the stories where it's trying to say like, hey, these people messed up, um, you're going to have a very short book. Yeah, yeah. And I I love how how seriously people claim to take the Bible. Um, We almost revere it in a way that we don't see that a lot of it's written about what not to do, you know, like Mm -hmm. confessory examples of failure. And uh, instead of, you know, getting these just great examples, you end up with a bunch of stories about violent, rampaging men saying, well, we can't just let our sister be treated as a whore while not ever hearing a word from her. It's almost like you could sit down with Simeon and Levi and say, now, if you don't go through with this very political, deceptive, relatively blasphemous plan, the promise of your forefather concerning land could happen. Yeah, you... You've got the Canaanite complexity, and that will need figured out. You might have to get over a, a pure race motive here, but we could end this journey here right now. What are you going to do? And their response is kind of like, there is no good thing that can take away that our sister was defiled. And then we would say, all right, Dinah, what do you think? 
give us your version of the story here. Do you think your brothers are acting with pure motives? And the brothers would just step right in and intervene and say, she doesn't get a say in that. Get out your swords. Let's go. It's like, right. Yeah. Right here. Here we are. We've seen all this before and we're going to see it all again. And we still see it today. So Genesis 34, just another story of how the people of Israel are utterly inept. Next time, We'll get back to Jacob and the birth of another son and the 12 tribes will now be set up for what is to come. And the cycle of Jacob is going to kind of begin transitioning into what will take us to the end of Genesis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.